In the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, after the first Christians encountered the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, many of the people standing around that observed it all asked this question, what does this mean? It's Pentecost Sunday today, and here, almost 2,000 years later, I think that question about the Holy Spirit is still being asked. What does this mean? And that's what I want to talk about for the next three parts of this series about the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? So let's begin at Pentecost, because this today is Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar. And Pentecost is a really exciting day as the church because it celebrates the inauguration of the church. We have Easter, we talk about the Jesus' death and resurrection, and then 50 days later, you get this, Pentecost. Pentecost was a festival in the Jewish calendar that celebrated the giving of the law. It was a pilgrimage festival. So you would try, if you could, to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for this incredible festival that celebrated God's giving of the law. And so that's what's happening on one particular Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Now, the story picked up in Acts chapter 2. And let me read it for you like this. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared amongst them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, There were Jews, devout Jews, from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked each other, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, but what does this mean? Now others sneered and said, now they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the raised voice and addressed the people, saying, People of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Now, I can never read this bit of the Bible without thinking that Peter has obviously never traveled in Scotland during a festival where 9 a.m. is a perfectly normal time to be drunk. But, you know, that might be an inappropriate joke to tell in a, in a church context. <laughs> but Peter continues, no, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, Peter then launches into this inaugural sermon of the church, and you can continue reading it later if you want. He charts the story of Jesus and how he fits into God, well, how he fits into God's plan and purpose for creation, how Jesus came and was rejected and was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. And Peter starts to unpack what that means for the people who are there listening. 
He then, he unpacks that this scene, these people speaking in all these other languages is a symbol and evidence of God now pouring out his humanity on all flesh. God is pouring out on humanity his spirit. Now, as far as sermons go, like the text says that 3,000 people joined the church that day. So it's kind of a successful sermon. And, uh, you know, perhaps every person who's ever preached their first sermon since has had to deal with the sort of crushing inferiority that we don't have the same impact that Peter had in his first sermon. But let's track the point that's being made here. The church begins at Pentecost with a vision of the future. These people speaking these other languages, these these other earthly languages, languages that the people walking by could hear and recognize as their own language. This image, this picture, is an incredible and beautiful vision of God. It's a vision of what God is accomplishing through his kingdom. The church begins with this prophetic image of what the future will be like when God draws all people to himself. And and those people then praise God in their own language. Now, I've been in Pentecostal churches for most of my life. And there's this tendency within this tradition to get lost at this point in arguments about speaking in tongues. And I do think this is important. But I'm not sure that this is the context or the story from the Bible to talk about it. Because in doing so, what I've noticed in Pentecostal tradition is we actually lose what's what's actually happening in this story. So what I want to do today is talk about what's happening here. And then I'm going to talk in more detail about these gifts of the Spirit. We'll do that in a short circle and the podcast that's coming up in, in the next few days. Because I don't want us to lose what's happening here at this point in Acts. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' final words to the disciples were that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Like Jesus wants the church to spread beyond borders, political borders, ethnic borders, religious borders. And then in chapter 2, we have this scene at Pentecost, all these languages praising God. What does it mean? It's a vision of what God is aiming for, of what God dreams of. If the disciples obey what Jesus asked them, well, then this, this is what it will look like. But what did Jesus ask them to do? Well, he asked them to witness. We saw it just then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus will send the Holy Spirit and you will witness. But the language of witness has had a checkered story in recent church history. We've equated it to proselytizing or or sometimes harassing people or even doing something inappropriate. Perhaps, Perhaps you've had somebody stop you in the street at some point to ask you about your faith. Or worse than that, you've had somebody knock on your door to talk to you about it. And and if you've ever encountered that or experienced that, or depending on the church tradition that you've come from, when you hear the language of witnessing and evangelism, there's a tendency to sort of shut down and, and, and back away. But notice what Jesus doesn't say to his disciples in Acts 1.8. He doesn't say, you will get the Holy Spirit and do witnessing. But I think that's what we hear. That's how, we, that's how we take those, those words and, and kind of apply them. 
You get the Holy Spirit, now go do this. We kind of hear that, that we should be doing something. We hear that there's something we should be working at. Now, this is typical human. We take a gift from God and we turn it into a, a work, into a, a law. But notice what Jesus actually says. He says, you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. They're not something you do as a work, but rather something that you become as a result of the Spirit's work. Once again, it's grace. Like you will become witnesses, Jesus says. You will represent the welcome and transformation of Jesus in your life. Not because of your hard work, but because of who Jesus is. It's more about thinking about how you live out the transformation of Jesus in your own life and context. It's not about running into some neighborhood, three communities from here, and knocking on their doors. It's probably more about how you are with the person you work next to or the street you happen to live in or your own family. Like, how do you live out the transformation of Jesus in your day-to-day existence? Like, there's no point inviting someone to church if our own lives aren't inviting. Like, if Jesus isn't transforming us, why should anyone trust him to make a difference in their life? And so the Holy Spirit is about witness. The Holy Spirit is about the mission of God. This beautiful picture on the day of Pentecost of all these different languages praising God is a picture of what God wants for the world, that God wants all of us to be drawn into his love, all of us to be drawn into his hope. Now, this universal aim of the Spirit's transformation is important for us. Notice That in Acts, the purpose of the Spirit is not so that you can get to know yourself better or feel all sort of warm and fuzzy inside, but rather that you would partner with God in his welcome to all. And that might not seem huge to us unless we notice that when we start to think of the Spirit in exclusively internal contexts, the Spirit becomes something of a commodity, something that some people have and other people don't have. And when we think of the Spirit as exclusively internal, we stop thinking invitationally. We stop thinking about how how is the Spirit transforming us to represent Jesus and his kingdom. And another aspect of this picture on this incredible day of Pentecost is this transition from exclusive to welcome. Like the scene in Acts 2 is an echo of the temple dedication in 1 Chronicles chapter 7. A a scene that included rushing fire and cloud. But in the middle of this temple dedication scene, the king asked a question. Can God even live in a house? Like it's brilliant. Everyone has just worked really hard at unknown expense to build this temple. And the king goes, I'm not sure this is going to work. (laughs) Now, the echo of this scene in Acts chapter 2 answers this question. Pentecost symbolizes a transition from the idea that God is in a house to the idea that God is in a people. So we move from holy space or holy place to holy 
people. And this scene then is an answer to how God wants to work. To this day, we still like the idea that God has a place, that there's a place that we need to go to encounter him, to be near him. But the point of the story of Pentecost is to realize that God now dwells, as we had always hoped he would, in all flesh, in all people that want to open themselves up to him. So so this kind of resists what I would call the commodification of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a commodity, like an object that can be traded or, or exchanged. The Holy Spirit is not some sort of thing that if you come to this particular space, you'll be able to find the Holy Spirit. Or, you know, but not if you're over there. It's not for anybody over there. Rather, it is for everyone. In Acts chapter 8, someone tries to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. They offer the disciples money, but the disciples say it can't be bought because it's for everyone. If the Holy Spirit is for everybody, then it can't be owned. It can't be commodified. It can't be used to oppress because this kingdom is for the poor and the downtrodden and everybody. And if all of a sudden, you had to have particular things in place in order to have the Holy Spirit, if you had to have the right amount of money or the right particular standing or be in the right particular location, then the Holy Spirit would be privileging one group of people over the other. But the Holy Spirit has this beautiful leveling equality in being open for everybody. So I, like, I often like to think of Pentecost as the last pilgrimage. Like all of these people have traveled to be in the right place at the right time. But now in that moment, we realize that if the Holy Spirit is for everyone, then no one needs to travel to a particular place to get it. You can have all of God's Spirit where you are like your living room watching a YouTube channel, your garage listening to a podcast, the car on the way to work. Like the Holy Spirit meets people where they are, which is why Christianity isn't. It's not a pilgrimage religion. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, oh, come here, but rather the message is is go. Go and be. Like live out invitationally what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done in you. Like I am convinced more than ever that God is more interested in how we behave at our workplaces than how many great services we've been to or how many famous churches we visited or or how many incredible Christian authors we have autographed copies of their books. And if we if we understand this, like this will help us make sense of this of this incredible picture of all these different languages praising God. In Acts chapter two, we heard it already. How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? The skill set and requirements to follow Jesus are remarkably low. You don't need to know much at all. To follow Jesus, you you can actually just turn and follow him. 
like just straight away. You don't need to learn a language to understand the scriptures. You don't need to develop a particular academic progress to to know what you know or how to make sense of what's going on. Like these these might be good things to help you and your devotions and study later, but you don't need to do it to follow him. And this, like this is seen in this beautiful moment of all these other languages praising God. It's a vision of what God wants, of what he wants the world to look like. He's moving towards us. See, because Pentecost, well, you see, it speaks to the core goodness of diversity. Like God is, God is an incredible artist and he has painted the world in diversity. And, and the call of God is not to make it all the same, but to show off all of this incredible diversity. And this, for me, is one of the most beautiful ideas of Christianity that's found in the day of Pentecost. So you might ask, what does a follower of Jesus look like? And that should be a difficult question to answer, because... Well, the answer should be, according to Pentecost anyway, the answer should be, kind of depends where that follower of Jesus is from. In Canada, a Christian should kind of probably look Canadian, and in the same way that in the Congo, a Christian should probably look someone like someone who's Congolese, and, and in India, a Christian should probably look Indian. Because the beautiful thing about a God who can be praised in local languages is that we don't colonize with the gospel. We bring the beautiful transforming message of Jesus and it works within that culture in the way that that culture understands itself because they praise God in their own language. Lamin Saneh, the, the late Gambian scholar, has this beautiful quote where he says the original language of Christianity is translation. Like Christianity comes to an area and then makes sense of itself in that area. Christianity can redeem local culture. Christianity in the power of the Spirit will bring out what's good in that local space. But what it won't try and do is just try and turn it into a different version of another culture because that would imply that this culture is better than that one. And you see, yeah, we love the idea that you can get on a plane, at least we used to love that idea, that you can get on a plane and travel to the other side of the world and get off and walk into Starbucks and order exactly the same drink as you get back home. But with church... Like, you should fly to the other side of the world, and you should find a church that reflects not what you're used to, but reflects the local culture. Yet, you will recognize the same Holy Spirit, because it's not supposed to be like home, because you're in a different place now. And think about, think of the birth of Jesus, for example. Like, if nothing else, that surely tells us that the gospel at its very core, at its very beginning, is about being translated into what's local. There's something profound about being local. There's something profound about living out the gospel in its own local place. And that's what the Holy Spirit is there to do in us and through us. Because Pentecost is not monochrome. God's not trying to build a black and white world. He's trying to do something full of color and diversity. 
You see this if you read Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, where Paul talks about the wisdom of God being defined through the church in all of its diversities. Which leads us to ask a question of ourselves. At this point in history, where we cannot gather in one place, how do we translate the gospel through our lives today? Like into the places where, where we spend our time. Like what does it look like at work, university, on our streets and communities? How does the Holy Spirit work through you for the good of your neighbors or your community? Can, can the gospel work in the world of socially distanced conversations and size-limited barbecues? Can the Holy Spirit's transformation in me be invitational over Zoom? And Pentecost tells us that God is enthusiastic about working in and through you, regardless of who you are and where you are from. So you don't need to get on a plane, practice a new language, go to university. God is with you right now and working in you so that your neighbors might say, how is it we can hear this in our own language? Now, there's lots more to say about the Holy Spirit than just this, but here's where it begins. Here's a response to what does it mean. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost means that God is transforming us. He's changing us. He's forming and shaping us into invitational Jesus followers who through our lives, behaviors, values, and actions, we will work with God towards his vision of a beautiful world. And just one more thing about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. The big grand entrance of fire, languages, 3,000 people, isn't the norm. A few pages later of Acts, and you discover the Holy Spirit is helping them deal with like ordinary life stuff, looking after poor people, caring for widows. And Pentecost, understood badly, sends us off on a pursuit of endless spiritual highs when actually the Spirit is called to be amongst us in the ordinary. Like, I love how Tish Harrison Warren phrases it. She says, everybody wants a revolution and nobody wants to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get a thrill out of an edgy faith. But it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. Like, I know well that there are days where you wish there was the high because staying at your job in your community or whatever is just taking all you've got. But again, Pentecost reminds us that if the Spirit is with everyone, then the Spirit is with you everywhere, even in the mundane and the difficult. So may you, may you experience the Holy Spirit in change, in difference, in diversity, in the ordinary, 
May you know that whoever you are and wherever you are, the Holy Spirit is for you. Grace and peace.